Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 142. Our last episode was quite fun with Bethany Welsh, who told the story about, first off, finding her way in a pretty male-dominated industry, obviously, as a woman working in construction and has had what's been a completely award-winning career over the last six years. And her friend won one of those Instagram uh, competitions where it's like, share and tag a friend, you know, normally for like a fluffy toy. But what they won was for two people to go to Everest Base Camp, um, which is the most insane prize I've ever had in my life. So they won that. And with the relevant training that were given five months, um, they went for Base Camp. And some people hear Base Camp and think that's like a tent at the bottom of Everest. It is 5.2 thousand metres up. So it's higher, four times higher than anywhere in Scotland. Um, I believe the highest peak in the UK is Snowdonia, Snowdon, or is it Ben Nevis? I can't remember. It's about four times the highest peak in the UK, uh, which is kind of mad. And it was tough for Bethany and she had to get flown out by the last helicopter for three days. So it's quite a story. Um, she openly says i don't know if i'd be able to tell the story if that helicopter hadn't turned up so it's quite a a moving one the next episode we'll have is with david mitchell who was last year's saifc stocks person of the year joint with andrew nielsen i went to uni with david he was a nightmare as a student and i'm sure he'll admit it uh, and he's continued to be <laughs> just the same in life uh, but quite a successful farmer very big in young farmers as well so quite a good story there and today is an episode <clears throat> that i've really wanted to film for some time um and just before I introduce the guest, I quite often like to promote uh, guests' social media and stuff like that. And this guest today's social media has hands down the best name of any Instagram account out there. Uh, she's sort of laughing on ca off camera at the minute. But our guest today's name is Claire Whittle. She's a vet and her Instagram name is Dr. Do Whittle, which I think is amazing. But Claire, would you like to say hello? Are you mate? You all right? Uh, my dad came up with that, and he was very, very proud of himself. <laughs> <laughs> Not even taking credit for it. <laughs> oh, and I've got it inscribed on my stethoscope. It says Doctor Doolittle with some smiley faces. So he got that for me uh, when I graduated as a present. So yeah, but no, I like it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's genius. It is absolutely having never seen a Doctor Doolittle film or anything like that. I still think it is absolutely genius. Um, Just before we get started with another episode of the R Two Cast. I would like to thank our primary sponsors, Howden Rural, formerly known as A-Plan Rural. Howden are heavily involved in the social media scene in the ag space with over 100,000 followers on Instagram. They use this following to host social media takeovers with farmers throughout the country to showcase their stories, as well as posting to their rural community blog with further articles about these people in the sector. On top of this, they like to support initiatives that are championing the British agricultural industry, such as myself. So thank you to Howden Rural for that. But yeah, here, Claire, it's always quite fun at the start of an episode to get a lot of background on a guest. Could you give us a little bit of a sort of whistle-stop tour, tour of who Claire Whittle is? Uh, yes, I can, mate. Um, I'll go off on one, so do interrupt me. Love it. No, it and as I said good. to you before, I am a scouser, so I, I, I tend to talk quite fast, so <laughs> tell me to slow down if you need me to. Um, but yeah, so... Um, uh, Claire Whittle or Dr. Do Whittle is a bit and two very different people. <laughs> um, but so basically, yes, I'm a farm vet. Um, I've been a farm vet for about nine years now, which is a float. I can't even tell you where that's gone. It's just it's too quick. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, so I went to uni in 20, two, sorry, 2009 it was and um, no intention of being a farm vet whatsoever. So that was a point I um, wanted to go and do small animal. Um, I was already 24 by the time I went to uni. So I was quite old, a mature student. <laughs> um, but I think I, I, I'm 
told I had no idea what I wanted to do. Like when you're picking your GCSEs when you're like 14, I just don't know how people figure out what it is they want to do. So um, <clears throat> I ended up doing French, Spanish, English and art for A-levels, which are obviously aren't very useful for being a vet. Worked for a few years in hospitality and um, retail, basically. Worked my way up, did relatively well. And then just, yeah, I think I got to the point about 22, 23. And I was like, what do I actually want to do? Because I don't want to be getting home at seven o'clock in the morning anymore. <laughs> And um, yeah, I mean, Liverpool City Centre was brilliant to work in, but yeah, I, I think I just had enough. And um, I, I mean, every kid always wants to be a vet, I think, don't they? At some point, at some point, every kid yeah, thinks I want to be a vet. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, we had a dog called Benson after George Benson, jazz musician, another of dad's favourites. Um, but yeah, so that was um, that was like, yeah, I was about 22 uh turns out you can't get into vet school with French, Spanish, English and art. Um, and I tried to get a job as a veterinary nurse, but I couldn't get a place. At, um, I couldn't get um, like a, a placement. So I got a place at college, but I couldn't get a placement. Someone said, have you thought about being a vet? And I was like, well, I haven't got the right qualifications. So I ended up going back to college. So I went to college for a year and I did physics, chemistry and biology, um, it, like A-levels, but in a year. So it was like a one year and a medical uh, access course to medical science or something it was. Um, and there was only a few universities that take that, which still annoys me because I'm still a vet, despite that. Uh, Cambridge definitely wouldn't have me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, uh, sorry to, to cut you off a little there on that one, Claire. It's, it's, we see... A lot of students that are, you know, they, they maybe want to get into agriculture or animal science or veterinary nursing. And then halfway through, they're like, do you know what, vet meds, what I want to do. And I think it just, it it's such a, a severed opportunity. Like here in Scotland, it's 40 grand a year on top of a degree to try to get into veterinary. And it just, it makes it makes it an elitist industry, um, which I think is a major problem. And it's quite nice to hear you say that it annoys you that it's not, you know, there's, there's kind of only one not quote unquote easy way to get in, but I feel like it should make it a bit more accessible to folk who would be fantastic vets. Um, I would agree, mate. I, vet school is, um, as far as I'm concerned, it's very elitist. I mean, it's yeah. based on, you know, you have to have straight, you have to be a straight A student. And one of the things that annoys me, um, I shouldn't say annoys me, but communication's really key. And I think that sometimes gets lost along the way. You know, we get these really academic students who are, and, and some of them, and most of them will make brilliant vets, but that communication is like 99% of what I do. And actually, you know, a lot of the stuff just is kind of repeating yourself. A lot of vets would argue with me on that and say, you've got to be really clever, but you kind of just get into the routine of doing it. And there's some people, like you said, that would make excellent vets. And unfortunately, they just don't get the opportunity. Um, and I think it's a shame. So um, there's my shout out to universities to think a bit better about how they get students on board. And yes, yeah, so, and yeah. But yeah, so that is one thing. But no, so I, I um, yeah, I basically went um, back to vet school. So got a place at vet school. I was a mature student. I was, I felt like a bit of a box ticker, really, <laughs> in a lot of ways, which is a terrible thing to think. Massive imposter syndrome. Not that I deserved it. It was definitely because I was brown. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I wore glasses and all of those things. Like, I don't know. I felt like, and I was a mature student. Um, I talk about imposter syndrome. I should, I'm not going to talk about imposter syndrome now. We'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of us get it. And, you know, I think um, when we, we get into careers quite young, I, I was I was lecturing at 23. I had major imposter syndrome because you, you're, you're working in this industry that you've looked up to for the last six years of higher education. And you're like, this is really smart people. And they're like, God, I can really spell my own name out of my ear. And then, you know, like, it's, it's yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I totally get it. You seem much smarter than I am, but um, it's a, uh, 
it's a real thing and it's a thing a lot of people probably that are you know look up to people in good jobs think oh those folk can't have it i think it's where you get it more like yeah I, yeah, definitely. Sorry to cut you off, though. But no, just... no, you're fine. I was talk- it was actually today. So I did a talk today for some vets about dung beetles, and we'll come on to dung beetles in a minute. But it was the thought of doing it to vets made me really nervous. Um, to other vets, actually, like my peers, because for me, other vets are just like really clever people, and uh, I don't feel like I should be in that room somehow. Um, but then you do it. It's fine once you once you're there and once you're talking about it and you know your stuff. But it's it can be quite scary, and it, and you get in your own head, don't you? So no, it's I think that's perfectly normal. Um, I think it's trying to get better at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's. I wonder if these things ever come. It's, it's strange. I don't know if it just comes with confidence, but I think, I think it's a trait that of people that are striving for success. Because if you if you sort of come into something, you're like, oh, I know this is perfect. Like it's fine. You're probably not going to try and make it better. Whereas if you're in that position, you're like, oh, I've got me that's better. I've got me that's better. You probably <laughs> will. Um, but yeah, I, I I totally get it. I totally get it. But no, I, I'm I love hearing. I, I quite often have I've, I've had quite a few vets on. Eh, most of them going through the sort of conventional process, getting however many hires straight away, going in at eighteen and, and coming out at twenty three. First off, I have heavily heavily underjudged your age. I thought you and I were about the same age, and I'm twenty six, so I've got that terribly wrong. But um... <laughs> I love this. I'm forty next year. There is no actually. I'm not, I'm not even. I'm not having that at all. There is no chance you're for I don't, that's what I mean. I don't know where it's gone, mate. It's gone too quick. Um, I've forgotten where I was up to now. But yeah, no. So, um, was I was has it ever gone to vet school? Yeah. So I got into vet school. Yeah. Um, sure. went through vet school. Had um, so intention was to do purely small animal. That was it. And then in my first year, I had to go. You have to do experience in everything. Um, so you have to do small animal. You have to do equine. Um, so horses, and you have to do farm. Um, so one of the things is you have to go and work on a dairy farm for two weeks. I would just like to quickly interrupt the show for a minute to give you some extra information about our primary sponsors, Howden Rural, the new name for A-Plan Rural. Howden Rural provide bespoke insurance cover for farms and estates. This could be for anything from tractors and machinery to a new exciting diversification venture. Be sure to check out Howden Rural today. Uh, my dad is terrified of cows. So I grew up basically also terrified of cows. So I had to go and work on this dairy farm. And um, I went to the university's dairy farm. And I remember my first day, I remember the girl, so there's a girl called Holly that drove the tractor at the time. And uh, I mean, she's inspirational anyway. Um, I remember being like, there's a girl on a tractor. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember asking me to go and... Um, she wanted me to empty the water trough where the heifers were and so to do that I had to go into the cubicles where the heifers were and I was like you 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 want me to go in there she was like yeah I was like with the cows she was like yeah (laughs) and she gave me this bucket and brush and I remember being terrified mate like I did not want to go through it and I managed to like squidge down the side of the wall so I was behind like a barrier and uh, sorry I'm, I'm doing hand gestures and no one can see but <laughs> so I was behind a barrier and like pressing myself up against the wall to empty this water trough and the heifers obviously didn't really care until they realized we we're splashed the water on the floor and they all like came running up the shed and I thought I was gonna die like I was like this is it this is the moment it's gonna it's over um <laughs> So but then point, fast, go on i was gonna say at this point did you ever <laughs> see yourself being a farm vet no mate <laughs> no not at all it was ridiculous i remember them like licking me and being like like horrified it was awful so i'm at it anyway I'm 
say fast forward two weeks and I was just loving it. Like I'd been in the milking parlor, I'd bedded up the calves, I'd fed the calves, like all of that kind of stuff. And I just like fell in love with it. And I, I went back there um, for more work experience. And then they ended up spending, we used to get the second year of summer off, off, like off basically. So I spent the whole summer at the farm. I did like four months, like young stock apprenticeship, which they hadn't done before. They actually offer that now. So students can go there for the summer and do like an apprenticeship. But I just fell in love with it. And I remember things like not even... John, the farm manager, was brilliant as well. And that's, I think, one thing that's really important when we talk, we're talking about early about education is like having people that are open to people that don't come from farming backgrounds. I must have asked a thousand million questions and he always had time. I mean, sometimes he'd roll his eyes, but <laughs> he was so good. Um, I remember like going to bed the calves up. He said, you can you can bed the calves up today. You've done a really, you know, you're doing really well. So I bedded the calves up and I was made up with myself. And uh, he came back in and he went uh, and he like frowned slightly and I was like oh and he said it looks great but next time can you bed up with the straw not the hay oh, no. <laughs> and I, and I looking at these two bales and I couldn't tell the difference and I was like I don't know what you mean oh, and then no. he explained like what you know he's like this is grass this is hay this is what they eat and I was like like obviously it doesn't look like grass does it so he's like well then and then you know you go on you talk about silage and then he was talking about what the straw was and all of that kind of stuff he was just brilliant and I broke everything on that farm mate like I broke everything I smashed the tractor into doors they turned that they turned one of the steel doors into a Christmas card for me because I bent it that much um, <laughs> <laughs> um I smashed the backing gate um off for the to the control panel on the backing gate and knocked the window out the tractor like but he just like he was like if you don't do it you won't learn um so he was like really inspirational and uh then after that summer that's all I wanted to do was cows basically so I didn't know where that bedding story was going but that that did not disappoint (laughs) (laughs) I know it's just crazy um when I think about it now it's crazy um but yeah, so that, and then that was it then. It was just cows. That was all I wanted to do. I did loads more work experience there. I night milk there while I was at uni. So I used to do night milking on a sat. So I night milk three nights, um, so weekends. So Saturday nights, um, I would do night milking for three weekends. And then the fourth weekend I DJ'd because that paid better yeah. <laughs> for night milking. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, 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 so it's me and another girl um and we just had a we had a night call it makes me laugh now because it was like well bearing in mind it was like nearly what 10 years 15 years ago it was called (laughs) fat cherry (laughs) okay and not fat with a ph like ironic it was fat with an f actually fat. yeah like proper fat cherry um uh, we just used to have loads of fun so yeah so so that's what i used to do and um I remember like night milk, like you're going out after milking. So I'd milk with um, my rollers in, because obviously Scouse, um, and like a plastic bag on. Um, and I got told off once because I had, uh, someone came on the farm at night while I was milking and I had a Sainsbury's bag on my head and it was a Tesco dairy farm. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was quite fun. But uh, so I did that till, till I graduated, basically. I was really sad to leave, but... Um, I got first job down in Dorset, so I worked two years down there. And your first few years out of vet school, you're still learning. I mean, I, for me, not from a farming background, everything about farming was just brilliant. Like anything anyone was doing, I was like, it's like a whole new world. Um, and then I think, I think when I was about five years in, 
I started to, as we all did, hear more and more negative press about farming, about its impact on the environment and that kind of stuff. And um, I was like, how can this brilliant thing that I love be in any way bad? Um, And started looking into a bit more and I couldn't weigh up the two things. Like I was quite shocked by some of the environmental stuff when you start learning about it. And um, I think in order to, yeah, the, the negativity around it just bothered me a lot. And the... I guess they say, you know, sometimes they say you can have one conversation, it can change the course of everything that you do. <laughs> um, I met um, a, a farmer um, who was basically had, there was a group of young stock and they looked amazing. And I said, I asked what concentrate they've been fed over the winter, because that was my assumption was that they would have had concentrate. He's like, no, it's just purely pasture fed. And I was like, they look like this off just grass <laughs> and then that led into them showing me around his farm and like like loads of nature-friendly farming stuff going on and hedge laying and stuff like that and I was like what is this like what is this type of farming like why isn't why aren't more people doing it um and anyway off the back of that I read the book Wilding by Isabella Tree don't you come across it um brilliant book about um the nepa state in sussex and how they basically changed their whole farming system away from conventional farms they took it all back in hand and they basically left it to nature but they did do some farming amongst it but it, what what the interesting bit for that book for me was that in there i read that we had dung beetles in the uk no right. we had dung beetles <laughs> and uh b that the products that i was prescribing as a vet so the wormers and things that we use in our cattle and in our sheep had really detrimental effects on them and i was a i mean i was shocked that you know no one had ever told me that so i was like here's me handing out wormers like candy not thinking about the environmental impacts of it um and then that sort of yeah i guess it just built on from there so i started to look for more information it wasn't available um I ended up doing a postgraduate certificate in conservation medicine, which was, it's like the link between ecosystem, wildlife and human health. Um, it was quite broad, um, but I couldn't find any information about dung beetles for vets or for farmers. And so basically with, um, so we've got three entomologists in our group now. Um, so we set up dung beetles for farmers or James Allen did. So James and his wife, Katie farm down near, um, Gloucester somewhere they're gonna kill me because they tell me all the time and I forget where it is but um they have beef and sheep there um and James is a software developer as well so he developed this website um and there's three entomologists there's Sally Ann Spence and there's Ellie Slade and uh, Max as well so Max um was at uh, Sussex University um studying entomology at the time but really keen on bats and dung beetles and then we have Bruce Thompson who's a Nuffield scholar um so he did his Nuffield on dung beetles and he's a dairy farmer from Ireland um and between us we set up this sort of free online resource and now I seem to spend a lot of my time driving around the country talking to farmers about poo basically <laughs> and the benefits that these like dung beetles provide so yeah which is, which is just what I'm going to ask what it is okay. was um, Claire was like any chance we can start 15 minutes later uh, I've been driving nine hours today to talk to <laughs> so it's, uh, it's not just a thing she speaks about it is absolutely part of her life so what are these benefits, Claire? What, why, why are you so pro dung beetle? So the base, the, I mean, mate, again, I'll go on. So you can need to stop me. <laughs> they're amazing. I'm going to say something which might be a bit rogue, but I think they're more important than earthworms. Can you say that? Wow, that's a big claim. Okay, <laughs> that's a big claim. I look forward to this. I look forward to this. We're going to have to get. We're going to have to get you in a 
Josh Hanika, who is part Kerrig, who's basically started a business creating worm casts. I had him on the podcast a few episodes ago. <laughs> you and him have to have a battle to see who wins. <laughs> I think we could, we could do that. Um, so base, they're like nature's natural parasite control. So they are the things that control sort of parasite levels in our livestock. So can I talk about poo first? Because poo is oh, really cool. Whatever you want. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we talk when we talk about poo. So one of the negative things that we often get from the industry is how much like poo you know there is and how bad it is for the environment and all of these things. And poo, obviously, we know is I keep saying poo. I really want to swear, but I can't. Um, <laughs> you know what you're going to say. <laughs> so, um, it's actually like from a biodiversity perspective, it's actually really important. So there was a chap in the 1950s, basically, who figured out that a single cow pack could support up to a thousand developing insects. So if you um, that could support, obviously, with a lot of the chemical stuff we use now, and I'll come on to why that's bad, but. Um, it's a lot less, but a thousand developing insects per pat per cow. And that is one pat. So if you think over a year, potentially a single cow, a single cow could support over 2 million insects. And when we're talking about like global biodiversity loss of around 70%, that is amazing that those animals can do that. And it's not just, it's not just dung beetles that are in there. There's all, obviously there's our parasit, parasites, so parasitic flies and worms, but there's loads of other things. It's like, a, it's like, I say, it's like a night out in a city. <laughs> <laughs> in a dung pat, like a night out in Liverpool. So if you can imagine you've got like your creepy guys hanging out on the street corners, so they're going to be like your parasitic worms and your flies. And then you've got your like big guys who are walking out wanting a bit of a fight and having a bit of a scrap. And they're like your predatory beetles and your spiders and everything's in there trying to fight and scrap and get the best parts of the poo. Then you've got your dung beetles who are getting like drunk on liquid dung. So they're just having a really nice time wandering through the city, having a bit of a drink. And what they're doing in drinking that muck is they're literally drying it out and then making it unsuitable for parasites parasitic worms and flies to complete their life cycles okay. and then you get things like your dung flies and stuff or loads of different fly species all over the top of it and they're basically having sex all over it so if you think about your big night out in the city that's what's going on in it so that's how I tend to describe it so there's so much going on in there and we just take it for granted but if you really what you can credible the biodiversity in there so that's just a poo but the dung beetles are really important because as i said so they dry out that poo and make it unsuitable for the worms to complete their life cycles so you've got two types of beetles in the uk we've got tunnelers and dwellers so the dwellers literally live their whole life in the pat and there's about 60 species of which about half of them are nationally scarce so they're struggling um, and there's lots of reasons for that. Um, but other things they do, so the tunneling dung beetles tunnel down under the pat. And what they do is they take that organic matter off the surface of the soil and they drag it down underneath, which is exactly where we want it. We want it incorporated into the soil. And they're basically mining, like mining shafts. And then they make side shafts off and they put the little poo balls in and they lay eggs in each of these little poo balls. Right. But those tunneling ones can go up to like two metres down. Uh, they've been found two metres down in the soil. So if you think the aeration that, that brings and obviously all that carbon sequestration so they're bringing that down under the soil and, and recycling those nutrients for us really with and they do it for free and obviously taking the muck away from the surface they reduce pasture fouling so you instead of getting muck piles sat on the surface which cows or sheep don't want to eat around the dung beetles break it all down so once it's dried out and it's dusty it just flakes away into nothing really and they can reduce greenhouse gas emissions so ellie slade looked 
that like they can reduce greenhouse gas emissions by up to 12% on pasture. Like these little tiny beetles can do all that. Um, it's reduced, actually, it reduces to 0.1%. And that's because most of the poo in the world doesn't actually hit pasture. It hits feedlot or it hits concrete. Sure, so yeah. when you're thinking about dung beetles, you've got to think about how they evolve. So they evolve with pats on pasture. So they need that sort of direct interface between the poo and the and the ground. And they can move up to like 500 times their own body weight, but they can't move concrete. Um, and obviously, <laughs> when we decided to put cattle and sheep into houses, which is our decision, you know, cows and sheep can't build houses, that affected dung beetles' ability. So when, they're, when the animals are housed over the winter period, those overwintering dung beetles that need poo on the ground, they don't necessarily have it. So um, leaving animals out over winter can be beneficial. And obviously things like, if we think again, going back to evolution, dung beetles didn't evolve with high grain diets. So when we feed our livestock high grain diets, they don't know what to do with that muck necessarily. Um, but the worst thing, obviously, is, is the use of, I mean, avermectins tend to be the worst um, culprits. Um, so what I do now is spend a lot of my time talking to farmers about ways they can reduce the use of their wormers. So we talk about the PAP principles, so prevention of them getting worms in the first place, then how to assess using diagnostics and then treatments like your final option. But can you do all of these things first before you end up reaching for, for a bottle? And we've, we've come to rely on these, these, these products as crutches, really. Um, and we've forgotten some of the grazing management. You know, they, they only came in in the 60s, really, into widespread use. So we did manage and we farmed here for thousands of years. You can do it without them. We just need, just requires a bit more thinking about, a bit more creativity. I am utterly fascinated. <laughs> this would be so, so clear. A lot, a lot of people listen to this podcast. You know, I think I've got something like 600 folk that don't miss an episode. And I am rarely quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I was just listening and listening. That's amazing. So, it is amazing. <laughs> so, do, I'm going to sound like... I'm a- just going to go with one more fact. So, this is just one it. really cool yes, fact. So, they also carry... So, if you turn a dung beetle over, quite often you'll find these little mites underneath them. They're called phoretic mites. And sometimes a dung beetle looks like it's being, like, taken over by these mites. Yeah. But they have this, like, symbiotic relationship with a dung beetle. So, the mites don't fly but they use the dung beetle like an aeroplane to fly from pat to pat. And when those guys go into pats, they will eat parasites that affect our animals. So parasitic, so like fly eggs and things like that. So they, and obviously they're things that will eat dung beetle larvae. So there's all of these little relationships in poo that are really cool. (laughs) That's amazing. So you called phoretic, is that the word? Phoretic, yeah. P-H-O-R-E-T-I-C or something. (laughs) Yeah, phoretic mites. So all all the sort of dung beetle acts as as a as a house not as there's no you said it was completely symbiotic there's no issues with each other at all no they they use the dung beetle so the dung what they will do as well is they'll eat so i would say everything's sort of predating everything else in a dung pat so some things will predate dung beetle larvae and we think the phoretic mites have some impact on the things that would affect dung beetle larvae so the dung beetles don't mind them hitching a ride basically I have a question and I, for someone that knows so much about it like you do, this might be something that you laugh at, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, could you is prescribe the word? I don't know what the word is. I know in like the States and whatnot, you can buy bees and you can uh, you can sort of um, integrate them into an ecosystem. Can you do that with dung beetles? Is that a thing? Yeah, we, we get asked this question quite a lot and there's two answers. I'll talk about Australia in a sec, but what I would say is if you provide for them, they will come, like they will fly in kilometres to get to you, to get oh. to your cattle. But if you're, wor- if you're overworming, if you're not managing your grazing properly, if you don't have the right environment for them, they won't be there, but they will be. So unless 
unless you there's be no point bringing them into that ecosystem if you're still not managing properly because they will just die off again so actually yeah. if you manage for it they'll come but there was an interesting thing in australia so when we went over to australia and we uh, took cattle and sheep over there they didn't have mammals like cattle and sheep um that lived so they had um, marsupials. So they only had dung beetles for marsupials. So the dung beetles in Australia didn't know what to do with this new poo that's arrived from these cattle and sheep. So what happened was the flies in, in Australia got so bad that it actually affected the economy of Australia. Oh my God. So they then had to import dung beetles from the UK and around the world that would actually deal with the dung from cattle and sheep. And that made a huge difference. So yeah, so there's yeah, so they do amazing things, but they will come if you if you provide the right environment for them, really. But there's so you, lots of things affecting them. So obviously the use of chemicals treatments, so whether it's um, our fly treatments or our wormers, but there's I mean land use change. So if you have like a car park where you want to have permanent pasture, that's direct habitat loss. Um, and obviously yeah, so livestock removal. So like I said, bringing animals in. Um, and then removal. So horsey people will message the website saying they've moved the poo off the pasture and they've seen all these dung beetles fly out. But they will because they don't know what to do with a dung pile. They've they've evolved with that poo on the pasture. So just like leaving a couple of poos out um, can really help them. But, yeah, there's a few things that affect them, not necessarily just wormer usage, but lots of different mm. lots of different things. No. <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm really interested in this, by the way. I'm normally like. I've normally got like quick fire questions because I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like proper bought into this. When you consider cowpats as as a cowpat, you're going to have to have quite a high stocking density for a field to get contact all over. So, is it? I guess my question is, how long does it take for a single cowpat to be at the point of? I don't want to say depleted, that feels like the wrong word, but basically a dung beetle's job is done on that cow pat and it's time to go on. Is that like a four-month period? Is that like is that a week period? What are we talking? I have no you idea. You can see like when you get emergencies, sometimes you can see like poo's gone in like four days, but that is in like really good environment. So if you get really into dung beetles, mate, you can watch videos of uh, dung beetles in the forests in like Norway and you literally see these poos like writhing with beetles and then they're gone. But I just don't think we see the abundance here in a lot of cases on some farms we do but it's the fact that it's drying it out so it's often you just find this like crispy pat on the surface yeah. um and it's nothing really it's nothing really to it and you just crumble it away but it can take yeah i think they can be relatively quickly if you've got the numbers there but we don't often see that on farm unfortunately and we don't have those numbers because of the climate or we don't have those numbers because of chemical usage in the cattle yeah so chemical obviously those high grain diets and potentially those really you know when in the spring you get really liquid poo because we've housed animals over the winter and you get that sudden change in diet which we all accept is relatively normal as because you know they've gone out and they've changed their diet but actually is it normal you know it takes it takes three weeks for a rumen to a rumen to you know to adjust to a new diet and in that period you have that really loose poo and again they don't know what to do with slurry and with loose poo they can actually drown dung beetles they can drown which is such an awful way to go if that's what you love imagine drowning in your in your little house <laughs> you're called a dung beetle yeah, it's quite a shame that isn't it? Um, yeah but it, yeah. It's, it's interesting you say that i'm mean, here i am not a nutritionist i am not a a, a a dairy manager in any form so if anyone's listening don't think i'm calling it at all it's just in my head this is what makes sense you're saying we see that as normal um in my head if you integrate more neutral detergent fiber for those few weeks prior it should be a simpler process but that 
that's that includes a ration change that includes a alteration for the sake of two weeks before cattle are going out it seems like a big expense but I think that's what is required. But as I say, I think if you're thinking from a dung beetle's perspective, all the cow needs to have is grass. So I'm not talking as a farm vet now or a farm manager. I'm talking as a dung beetle. All sure. I want to do is eat what is naturally available to me. So whether that's grass or whether it's tree or anything that's natural, as soon as you add in a different anything with grain in or any any different fibers to that, they don't know necessarily what to do with it. So it's just having like if you're a dung beetle you literally want pasture-fed animals that would be the ideal i see i didn't realize i assumed you included silage and whatnot as well you mean actually direct pasture. yeah direct or even hay and straw things like that i mean silage i suppose could be but it would be generally cows are that it's that change from any kind of concentrate often onto that very leafy grass isn't it as well and yeah. rye grass is very very leafy very leafy perennial ryegrass and that sudden change in diet affects the affects that change over when they go from being inside to outside but yeah it's just what we accept as normal and it, it just it makes you question it a little bit more when you start thinking about things through the eyes of a, of a beetle <laughs> I feel like speaking as a dung beetle uh, speaking as a dung beetle oh and i also get eaten by lots of stuff so there's loads like from an environmental perspective like they there's loads of stuff that eat dung beetles which is really really important so um wading birds so things like godwit and redshank and lapwing um they've all been found to have dung beetle wing casings in their poo um so we know that they eat them hedgehogs have you ever seen a hedgehog poo mate do you want to know a fun fact i've only seen one hedgehog in my entire life Oh, mate, that's sad. It's very sad. And I I, I, spoke, I told you I was from Isle of Arran. Mum and Dad speak about um, thousands and thousands of hedgehogs, like always having to go slow on the road because you've got a hedgehog. And then the badger population flew up and the hedgehog population, I've never seen one on Arran, not once. Oh, mate. Yeah, no, it's... So yeah, but hedgehog... So if you've not seen... Head. If you've only seen one hedgehog, you probably haven't seen its poo. Well, I, I might have. I just don't <laughs> know what it was... <laughs> So they're really cool because they're like shiny because of the, all the beetle wing casings. So not just dung beetles, but other things they eat. But they have these like beautiful blue shiny poos. Um, you're like, you'll know it if you see it, and it's bigger than you'd think. Like for a very, I mean, it's like my my small terrier size poo. Like it's a oh big. Oh my god! Poo. Um, Certainly giggling poo. <laughs> He's looking it up. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so like, and then bats as well. So greater horseshoe bats. There's always more greater horseshoe bats when there's livestock within four kilometers because they rely on a certain on dung beetles that fly at certain times a day owls and things so they're really good food source um and there was a study done up on the isle of isla actually where um which which uh, is your neck of the woods i'm gonna say very north, north even north, though north. i consider myself northern it's not <laughs> north. Hell yeah, i'm not northern it's the south <laughs> of this country is what isla is it's, uh, it's southwest <laughs> um so up on the isle of isla and um they basically noticed there was so red bill chuffs they're like crows with like red beaks um the population just dropped off a cliff and they couldn't really figure out why and what they've realized is that uh, so they, they go through poo and they look for fly larvae um so but because we were treated they were being treated the livestock so frequently with pyrethroids which are fly treatments and triclobendazole which is a flucoside there was the poos were dead basically there wasn't any life in the poo so there's nothing for the chuffs to eat so the numbers just plummeted i mean they're coming back now because they realize the problem but there's all of these unintended consequences of the products that we use day to day without really thinking about it it's just so easy to pick up a bottle so it's thinking about those wider consequences which i think is really important it's, it's one of the issues with uh medicine. I mean, triclobendazole came in and was able to kill all three stages and it's just, everyone's like, oh, we need this, it's the best thing ever. Uh, yeah. And then everyone goes for it. And then we have this issue where that's happening. We've got a 
complete resistance to the product as well. Like it's just that's the thing as well. I mean, even if you don't give a single poop about a dung beetle, um, you like everyone should be more worried about resistance. Like we get, we're just seeing more and more resistance. I mean, even the resistance to our fly products is turning up now. You know, we're seeing there's definite studies being done where the flies that we're trying to treat aren't, they're not responding to the treatment so well. So we've got to really protect these products and use them really, you know, as little, Bruce always says, as little as possible and as much as necessary. So yeah, it's a good way. <laughs> as possible and as much as nice oh I like that yeah there you go you can use that for chocolate as well <laughs> I'm sat at my desk which is probably why I'm one of the big people in your analogy in Liverpool uh, yeah it's a uh, oh my god that's so interesting I'll be honest Claire like I knew um, like if you follow Claire on Instagram, which I strongly advise you do, uh, there's mentioned the dung beetles in the in the uh, what do you call it, in the bio, and I was like, oh that'll be fun. You probably mentioned that at some point. I did not expect to go into a dung beetle city. To but honestly, I've, I've got my HNDs tomorrow. We're talking about dung beetles. <laughs> yes, <laughs> mate. I'm gonna. Get you should you should take so the web. On. You need to go on the website. So it's dungbeetlesforfarmers.co.uk. I know it's not hugely original, but it does exactly what it says on the tin. So no, there I you go. go. <laughs> I am. I'm going to have my students do a presentation on this, and I'm going to send you some. Um, well, you could do. We used to do these things at uni called like two minute tasks. So you had yeah. to do like we had to do. I had to talk about something called ALT through the medium of song, and so I had a ukulele. So you could maybe get them to do something similar. Dress up. I like that. But the thing is, they're so used to me being the most flamboyant. Um, what what would you say? Uh, just shameless lecturer that they're like, why is he like this? What he looks like a fool the whole time. So I'm almost my own worst enemy in that. They're like, I don't want to look like that. <laughs> I don't want to look like that. <laughs> never do as much as I ask them to. I bet thought, they love you, mate. I bet they love yeah, you. Just a big buffoon, twenty four seven. But I am. I am. I, well, I don't know if it'd be fair to say I'm sold. It's the first time I've heard about it. I need to, <laughs> I'm very interested, and I think this is a good time to move on to this because I'm guessing, given it was only two years ago, and your absolute addiction with dumb beetles, your Nuffield, Nuffield was related to that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, um, Basically, the dung beetles were kind of my in to regenerative agriculture or my interest in it. And the re I think because of all things in the world to make you interested, but it was that realisation that they are part of this ecosystem. And we don't often think of our farms as ecosystems, but that is in effect what they are. Yeah, we should. Like everything from the soil to the people that work there, to the wildlife, to the livestock, it's all part of this huge ecosystem. And that was... Um, one of the things I found when I did my postgraduate certificate in conservation medicine, I came across this regenerative way of farming and this, you know, trying to basically trying to regenerate the soils, which, you know, we, we know are so badly damaged. And then the problem is everywhere I look now, I just feel like I see bad stuff <laughs> that I want to go and fix. Um, but all of these things. So I basically became yeah, much more interested in the environment and how, you know, we can farm alongside nature and not fight against it all the time. Um, so then I start, as I started looking into that, I thought, I wonder how this can impact more widely on like livestock health and welfare. So my question was whether regenerative agriculture can improve the health and welfare of livestock. Um, and I was awarded my scholarship in 2020 and then COVID. <laughs> so it's obviously the Nuffield scholarship for people who don't know is a travel scholarship. So you get a certain amount of money to go and travel and find out about your um about your study topic um so we didn't travel 
um and then when the UK opened up um I decided to go like on a little road trip around the UK and actually I loved it so um I know you're supposed to travel around the world and I did I went to the states and I went to Australia but my time in the UK was like invaluable um I made some great friends had a really lovely time and learned so much I can't even yeah I can't even put it into words and and the answer I you know is is a resounding yes um i haven't finished my report yet i was going to see if you made a report yeah it's more that you know regenerative agriculture can improve the health and welfare of life but it can improve the health and welfare of everything on a farm and i think that's the important thing is it it can i mean the people the community the animals all of it it just when we start thinking about the root cause of problems on farms then it just opens up a whole new world of uh thinking and ultimately mate i i believe (laughs) It might sound a bit wacky, but if I, as a vet, I want to do myself out of a job. Like if I, surely if the animals are as healthy as they can be, I don't need to have a job. (laughs) So like, that's the point. That's why I became a vet was to have healthy animals. So if you can do that by how you farm, farm, you know, by farming alongside nature and using that and using that health that you get from the biodiversity on your farm, then I, that means I can not be a vet and I can farm instead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Always long term goal. I think, I think, and you mentioned Gloucestershire, uh, which is where this guy is. I had a, a gentleman on the podcast, Richard Cornick, who you may or may not know, um, but he's, I don't know, I think he's got about 150,000 subscribers on YouTube. He's 50 something. He started YouTube right at the start of YouTube um, and he just films in an old camera, like that's got the wee flip side thing out. And uh, he said to me when we filmed, and I actually think it was after we'd hit rec- uh, we'd stop recording. He said something along the lines of, um, "The health and welfare benefit to my stock of higher biodiversity is I can't remember what the word was high anyway, but the welfare increase for me knowing what my farm is like is through the roof." And I was like, "Shit, that's so I love that. That's deep." And yeah. Like, um, and it's so true, like, you know, with in, in the job I'm in, I'm lucky enough to be able to take students to, to the best there is in a lot of cases and show them what's out there. And and when I was a student doing the same course I now teach, it was the same. And and you went to these places and I'm like, we have this idea, like sort of anti-factory farm. And it's kind of what is a factory farm, first off, is the big discussion. And then there's also the massive battle. My master's was food, secu- food security food security versus environmental sustainability what are we going to jump to there's it's hard to combine both but um when you look at these is it mate is it hard to combine both you think it's not because i know i don't i think your point on a global scale (laughs) on what we have here may be different um on a global scale i think when you consider the fact that human welfare isn't at the stage it should be i think that has to come before animal welfare i think down the line yes it absolutely can be spoke uh, together but i'd love to hear your opinion on that though if you think it can I th- well we are a global community aren't we i think we forget that sometimes like we are like we are a, a whole you know it's not just about what happens here it's what happens elsewhere and i think food security is sometimes used <laughs> as a bit of a defense against like you know farming badly for the environment and actually mate the world is I, 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 I don't mean to take this lightly the world is dying mate and we are like literally walking into it with our eyes closed and unless we all wake up and do something environmentally from a farming perspective I just can't see it getting any better and food security has to be global and we can't for me we export so many issues by just carrying on with the status quo we've yeah. just got to think bigger than that I think and food security 
and environmental security are as important as each other. And I would just worry that we lose one when we talk about when we talk about food security. It's just like this. It's kind of a bit of a defense against bad practice, in my opinion. Sorry. I think that's true. No, I completely agree. And I actually one thing I would say about food security, um, I'm not saying I'm an expert in it. I do have a master's in it. I've done a wee bit on it. Um, I don't think barely anyone knows what it is, first off. I think we use it as a term. The news has said that it's been big with Ukraine. Uh, but before that, I mean, my my master's was literally as global as global food security a consideration of Scottish farmers. It was not. <laughs> like, I mean, strictly not uh, what I found. Now, I didn't get thousands of responses, but yeah, I got some responses. And normally the people responding to these things are progressive. And still, it was a no. Um, do I think it's used as a defence? Yes. I'm more saying it on... A global community, as you say, I couldn't agree more. I don't think it acts, it, it works that way. I think it, we are that way, but we're not operating in that system. I think countries like, and I hate, I hate the word developed, developed countries like us, the states and whatnot, like to pretend that it's that way, but I don't think it is that way. I want it to be, and I'm sure there's a way it can be. I, I don't know if you know, but I'm just back from Tanzania and Rwanda. Um, and uh, Tanzania in particular is poor. It is poor. Mm. And uh, when you look at what they're eating, environment environment is not a consideration. And I get it. I totally get it. Because if they, if they go and consider that and put all their time and effort into that, they're not going to be able to focus on the fact that they need to feed themselves. And that is difficult in places like Arusha and places outside Arusha and places like Dodoma. I went to Rwanda and it was extremely rich in some places, but there was just nowhere in Tanzania that that was the case. And and I think it's important that we remember that. You know, like what you're doing, Claire, is so important and pushing this regenerative story and this getting this narrative as part of reality. Because at the minute, it's something that some people hear the words and they're like, oh, it's a, a lot of farmers are guilty of ugh, regeneration, sustainability. Like we just need to produce milk, we need to produce beef. beef. Um, but we have to be conscious that there's other places that it's not the first on the agenda. And we, as, and I'll use the word developed, I hate the term and I say it a lot, we as developed nations have to play a role in assisting there. I just don't know how that happens. I don't know if that's strictly financial, if it's uh, if it's implementation of education, I don't know. But the when I'm talking about the food security versus environmental sustainability, when it shouldn't be versus it should be together, I'm not talking about places like here. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I know what you mean, mate. I would, I, I get that, and I and I t and I totally agree with you on a lot of it. The only thing I would say is, I think when we talk about regeneration and regenerating soils, that goes for all of those countries as well. And it's not necessarily, you know, we talk. There's a difference, isn't there, between often I think we talk about you, you know that the conversation around regenerative at the moment I think is a lot to do with profit and yield, and actually like that that focus solely on yield is for the for the world. For the whole world is is just the wrong way of thinking about it whereas when we start thinking about profit and we start thinking about what natural capital can provide in whatever country we're in there's benefits to be had there definitely for yeah. and particularly for countries where we have you know well obliterated their soils effectively because of our because of our greed in the west as opposed to as opposed to anything that they've done and just expect you know people to just 
yeah survive and yeah the, i mean the the food poverty and the hunger and all of that kind of thing is always if we go into there now we'll get very very deep i think very quickly but um it's an important it's an important topic but i don't think i think in this country using food security is a reason to not do things better from an environmental perspective when we can still produce food i mean at, you know we then come on to waste you know with the amount of food that we waste in this country over 30 30 to 40 percent of food it's incredible I mean that in itself you know we have enough we can feed we can feed ourselves and potentially feed the world if we just reduce the amount of waste products um scary it's about 12.4 billion people's worth um infrastructure waste well there you go 12.4 billion minus 34 percent is about our population not Mm. quite the give or take uh yeah, it's but I, exactly what you're saying. The whole thing I'm talking about is not aimed really at countries like the UK. In fairness, it's, it's more aimed on, on no. a global scale. Speak. Could you could you give us clear? Natural capital is a thing we hear about a lot. What's your take on natural capital? So it's what it, what ecosystem services are provided by the things that occur naturally on your farm. I guess for me that would be how I would. So it's 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 basically um, so it's everything. So I would I'd talk about. So how can natural capital benefit? I mean, most of it's free, isn't it? So it's free benefits to you, I would argue. That will be my take on it, I guess. That makes sense. <laughs> Provided by nature. <laughs> yeah, uh, or benefits to, benefits to you and benefits to your livestock. And that don't, you know, so let's give, let's talk about trees, for example. So trees on your farm, incredible structures. We talk about things like hedges, trees and hedges, and that you know they provide incredible shelter and shade. You know, if we shelter from um, wind and rain, so we talk about like, say, for example, the thermoneutral zone of an animal. So a, a cow is potentially quite happy down to about minus twelve, probably up to about plus twenty-five before she starts to struggle. Anywhere in between that, she's okay. But for a young animal, that thermoneutral zone is much smaller. So once it gets below ten degrees, they start to struggle. So if we've got animals outside having things like hedgerows and trees where they can shelter and they can get warm and not expend their energy on keeping warm, but expend their energy on production, there's a benefit there in that. So the shelter and the shade, um, there's biosecurity. So in terms of a hedgerow, we talk about having a three meter gap between livestock um, to reduce the risk of infectious diseases passing on. Why not have a hedgerow? An ideal hedgerow is three meters across at the base. So why don't we have those in place? Um, And in terms of browse and things that provides and trees, you know, browse, so tannins and things in trees tannins reduce parasites ability to be able to reproduce within the body of the animal things like willow provides minerals so cobalt zinc really high and in um in willow salicylin which is basically aspirin is also found in willow um so i mean all of these things we just don't think about it and in terms of heat stress in cows you know having trees outside climate change is only going to get worse and flat and you know trees are going to be a solution to not having to keep animals in year round because of the heat stress that we get we'll basically tip them over the edge and then when and then they'll, then we'll start see, seeing things like yields drop so if you know people say to me things like well flies are really bad under trees and I'm like well you've got 60 cows under one tree mate if you had 60 yeah. trees and one cow under each you wouldn't get that build up of muck under the trees there won't be pro- it's not the trees that's the problem it's the number so that's like you know that's one area where they can provide things and lichens on trees so lichens have higher levels of iodine than anything else but yet we don't let our cows and our sheep have access to them so how can we mix up and think about you know nutrition so all the varied diet we we talk about um my colleague dan talks about us eating the rainbow why don't we talk about animals eating the rainbow why aren't we providing them you know we put cows in a field of ryegrass and say well that's natural is it 
actually what would they know what would they eat if they were in the wild they'd eat a mixture of things they'd be getting you know flowers and and rooting you know rooting grasses with different root depths to pull minerals up from further in the soil that kind of things so and then and then we end up providing all of these minerals through boluses or things like that I know they're not I know cobalt's not mined very sustainably and you know there's it's it, some of the mining you hear around cobalt is horrendous in terms of things like child labor and stuff like that and yet we just use these products without thinking about it how can we provide that naturally on our farm and how can we get you know get benefits through doing it things like you know herbal laser are a big discussion at the moment aren't they you know chicory right. samphoin plantain they will reduce parasite burdens chicory can reduce parasite burdens in sheep by 40 percent then you've got your dung beetles doing 30 percent reduction in parasite burdens suddenly you're somewhere around 70 percent and things are looking a little bit brighter and you're not to reach for that bottle of avermectin which is another input and another cost to you so sorry to me that's kind of what natural capital is I am fascinated. I'm just. Have <laughs> you done a TED talk, Claire? Genuinely, have you done a TED talk? <laughs> I would change the name to Clear Talk. For, screw TED. Just get clear. I mean, it's just. And farm, it's all like for me, mate, a lot of the thing now is resilient. I often talk about resilience on farms. We're not seeing that. You know, if you have one product which you sell, whether it be milk or whether it be beef, and the, and the market drops out the bottom of that, you're going to be buggered. So, how do we make our farms more resilient? How do we reduce the need for inputs on our farms where we can? And that's not to say you don't have to use any inputs ever. I'm aware that I'm an input on a farm. <laughs> I know that. But actually, what can we do to make those soils more resilient? So, you know, deeper, like I said about deeper rooting grasses and things like that, but also providing that food for pollinators. We do, by just doing things, we, by making our farms more resilient, we know we improve water infiltration when we have deeper rooting grasses. So instead of water just, you know, running off pasture, we're actually saving that in the soil. And if we can increase our organic matter, by, I've forgotten the, the stat, but it's something like by 1%, you can, you know, several thousand gallons of water per acre. You can improve just by, you know, how we manage our cattle and using cattle and sheep in those systems are really important as well. And we and like we say, we've forgotten some of that stuff in Wales here. If you look at some of the old tide maps of the farms, next to nearly every farmhouse, it says Caius Butty. And Caius Butty means hospital field. And basically, these are massively diverse pastures close to the house where people will put their sick cattle and sheep because they knew that they would make them better. That's historic. That's on the on these maps. So people knew what to do, but we've just got these crutches now that we just reach for, whether, as I say, whether it's a wormer or whether it's a medicine or whether it's, you know, what are we disguising? Um, what are we disguising? What was that word? Caius Butty? Caius Butty. Yeah, I, I'm not very, my Welsh is not the best considering I live here. I am trying, but it's... Um, it's a wonderful language to listen to. I love listening to it, but I really struggle to try and learn it. Um, but yeah, so it's Bitty's Hospital and then Kai Fields. That's what. That's so cool. Um, see, mining in general, I, I think the, the big one, you mentioned cobalt, the big one is probably lithium uh, for, for, uh, for, for cars. And you see these lithium lakes and it's just an absolute scourge to look at it's disgusting mm -hmm. the, the the labor involved the poor um a uh, environment these people work in it's just shocking and we, and we look at this thing and we're like oh this is the thing changing the world tesla's going to be the next whatever i actually think it's a blip before we get hydrogen but that's a different thing i'm not actually fully up on it but um we don't consider that and it's mental, actually. It's mental because we, we're like, oh, you can't buy from Sheen because that's a, um, 
like sweatshops and whatnot produces products, but we don't consider it the products that we use to make money, uh, i.e. cobalt. You know, like it's how is cobalt readily available or not readily available? How is it naturally available? I hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the R2 cast with another really interesting guest. I would just like to quickly take another second to plug the sponsors of the show today, The Scottish Farmer, and I would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry. Yeah, so the Nigel Kendall at New Vetners um, has done loads of work on this and he's actually looking at feeding lambs with cobalt, So sorry, with willow. So willow actually is like an accumulator of cobalt and zinc. So zinc's also really, cobalt's an interesting one in that we know it's linked with worm burden. So low cobalt and high worm burden linked, which way, which one comes first? Probably not 100%, but it's probably a combination of the two things. And I think what you find in pasture is your cobalt levels drop off in the spring, summer, which is actually when your livestock need it. Um, and in willow, it does the opposite. So it goes up. So actually giving animals access to willow or willow, yeah, willow browse can be really, really useful in, 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 and the study that he did, it was quite a small study, but he's doing a much bigger one now. They had a control group um, that didn't get any willow. They had a group that were given um, a cobalt drench and a group that were given willow. And actually, interestingly, the control group and the cobalt drench group, the results, blood results were negligible. But it was only the willow that actually showed that there was increased cobalt in the blood. Yeah. So, again, I'm going to look so stupid asking these questions. No, you know. I'm just interested. <laughs> I'm guessing willow is lignin based. Rumens can't digest lignin very well. So when you say given willow, is it? It was the leaves. It was the leaves. So he had a, I think he said he had a student. I'd love to meet this chap. He's a vet now, apparently. And he, they called him the giraffe because, in fact, he was quite tall to so go and pick the leaves off. <laughs> but um, I know people who are feeding willow. Um, so I know people who chop the bark up. And so I don't think there's much stuff in the bark, but I know people who fed it as part of a ration. So yeah. things, yeah, as in uh, like literally uh, coppice willow or just like throwing a whole branch down into a field and just letting that things pick off. It doesn't have to be every day. I think they did it once a week for the trial, but I'd have to. I'd have to double check that with Nigel, but I, that this that was for sheep. But I'm assuming the same things for cattle. I'm hoping to do a little bit more work on that actually to try and find out some of the benefits of cattle. But like I say, so you've got your cobalt, you've got your salicylin, which is basically aspirin in there, and then you've got your high tannin. So all of those things combined. I mean, why why not feed that instead? Like try it, see what happens. Give them a bit of a go. Well, exactly. I completely agree. Yeah. And loads of the trees will have different minerals in. So I think older, like older's got various things, but we don't, we just, as I say, we give them this grass, rye grass and clover and kind of just say, oh, you'll be all right, guys. But, you know, and, and people will put them onto meadows or permanent or more permanent pasture and say that yields drop slightly. But actually, if you've not had to reseed that field or you've not had, to, you know, all of those kind of things that feed into it, how much money are you actually saving? Like what's the benefits of having that diversity in that pasture has got to be good. I think we're um, very focused and that's probably from within. I, I'm probably part of the problem here. I try and speak about costs as well, but I still definitely teach what I'm about to talk about. We we consider milk price, we consider SQQ for meat prices, which is obviously important, but it's almost like the the primary and the sole way we can make money. Whereas, like you're saying, the best way to start making money is reducing what you're putting in. And if you're reducing what you're putting in, also while increasing the natural capital on your on your let's call it an ecosystem let's not even say farm at this point for the sake of what we're talking about monetary wise i'm guessing a uh, post eu and once subsidies completely gone that's going to be where money's going to be as well if you're really considering this purely as a business entity um to take away 
somewhat from the, the sort of natural side for a minute. But yes. Yeah, oh god, I, here I've I've written like forty things down. I'm just gonna. <laughs> But I mean, your money, it, it, and it is tricky, mate. Don't get me, you know, I know, for, I mean, I have clients that have huge numbers of cows. They may have just put in, you know, a new parlor or a new shed and they, they have no choice. The debt that's involved sometimes with farming makes it really difficult to make those decisions. But again, that is, that's a problem of, I would say, the industry. Like we need to start thinking bigger. The banks need to start thinking bigger than that kind of stuff. You know, how can we support people to move towards those systems if that's what they want to do when you're stuck in this cycle of debt? It's, a, it's it, like, you said, like you said before, the system's a bit buggered, isn't it? It is a bit. It is a bit. And I think... It takes people like yourself to sort of move out of that in fairness. Um, mm. You certainly changed my perspective already, genuinely. <laughs> the, the word regenerative, unfortunately, splits people a lot. But I think when I, I tried to think about it as sort of nature friend, like nature friendly farming, really. And like people, it doesn't mean, you know, you don't have to go full whole hog and do, you know, everything and become, I mean, people call me a hippie all the time. I'm quite happy with it. But so, <laughs> um, you can do, there's little things people can do, you know, things like if you're growing maize, like under sowing your maize and stuff like that. And you get a second crop then, you know, if you've got grass there, you can have sheep on tack over the winter, all of those things sort of play why aren't we we just need to start thinking like how we can yeah how and also that it brings that diversification as well so how can we bring more resilience to our farms and to our soils which are effectively washing away into the rivers um <laughs> yeah just, and, it, and it's not sustainable no it's not it's not um i'll have a great fun I'm, <laughs> just, I'm just looking at my list here of all the things to look up um and you know do you know what i'm gonna do this is this I can guarantee you when I tell my mum about this podcast, she'll listen to it like 40 times. <laughs> my street. Uh, so like we I'm from a farm, like a beef and sheep farm. As I said, it's sort of at the foot of a volcano. So because of that, well, it's not at the foot, it is one. Um, because of that, we have a triple SI from a as a volcano perspective. So, you know, like tearing up the, the hill for trees is, is not an option, uh, which you know, in some ways is good, in some ways is bad. Uh but it's very much just left as is, uh, and we've also very one of the one of the not many places in the planet, but it's it's or in in the country, but it's an SPA and a triple SI because it also has a hen harrier population. Uh, so I it's a hen harrier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exciting. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, but I guess you know more can be done to sort of help that population, but it is still protected on that basis. But uh, a lot of what you're talking plays into what our farm has to. Uh, live by and i've probably sort of been brought up think seeing it as has to whereas it should more be well let's have to consider it more as why we're doing this and, and, and a benefit as opposed to just lawfully you know legally this is yeah it and that's exactly right mate like production so we all we always think about production from like a you know from a like i said from a milk or a meat perspective but what is your farm producing like what is what amazing stuff is that doing for not just you know production can be that that literal thing of what we have as an end product but what about the carbon it's sequestering what about the um wildlife corridors it's providing what about what is product if we just think about production in terms of what we're trying to produce off the to get off the farm what about what we're producing to stay on the farm that's also massively important I think we and it gets forgotten sometimes a little bit but I mean some farms are amazing and there's so there's so many things that people do already without even thinking about it I mean hedges they're fantastic and they're everywhere well, they are here I mean maybe not on your volcano but they are like everywhere aren't they <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
and it's very much not a, a completely natural thing. It's a synthetic thing. But dry stained dikes are massive habitats. You know, there's a lot of old dikes in our farm. Um, and I should, for those people listening, when I say dike, I mean wall. Uh, I got in trouble one time teaching St. Dyke and someone was like, what? And I was like, like a wall, a wall, a wall, a wall. We don't need to get into that already. Uh, yeah, so, um, I thought a dike was a hole. Like, a, I've got, well, I don't even know, know what we're talking a, about, mate. Like a, 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 like a ditch. No, no, no. Dry stained dike is a, uh, like, well, you probably don't know what I'm saying when I'm saying stain. Dry stone. Yeah, so dry I've stone. I've been to the hill of many stains. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while to figure out what a stain was but then when i saw all the stones i was like oh, i got it i got it diking is a phenomenal skill um but uh, some people take the word as different so no but uh yeah it's there's so much on farms and i was yeah when we were doing when we were looking at that greening payment mum and dad i wasn't there at the time but they they wrote down everything they they, they knew was on the farm from an animal and a plant perspective I'm not going to say the number. I would have to ask my own dad to get it, but it was a massive number. And you know, our farm's not massive. It's not tiny. It's 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 um it's about eight hundred hectares total. But um, yeah, it was pretty big, mate. What's that? That's pretty yeah, big for sure. But like, <laughs> it's like from a, yeah, it's it's very it's all hill though. From yeah, a, from yeah, from a, 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 a arable perspective, it's not that type of farm. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's but uh yeah, there's there's so much there, and and you know, speaking to you, Claire, I'm sure you'd love this. You haven't actually mentioned them, but I'm just I, I get the vibe. This will be the case. There's no grey squirrels on Aaron, but there's there's a lot of red. Right, that's what I like to hear. I'd, I'd never seen a grey squirrel until <laughs> I moved to Glasgow. I'd never seen one. Um, You're not supposed to either, but they're here. Yeah, there's, there's a few. <laughs> there's a few. Yeah, but I mean, reds. You see them all the time. Um, I would say we probably, I don't know what you do to, to increase that population, but I think we need to do a bit more back home because I would say it's going down. But still, the, uh, you, there's we've got like a little wood, maybe maybe a kilometre from our farm that is part of our land, and, and there's quite a lot of red squirrels. And uh, if they would allow the trees to meet, which I don't think the council would, it would be a perfect corridor for them. Um, but yeah, here, I've, I've loved this. I've got so much. <laughs> do you think Nigel would be keen to do a podcast to keep this? Oh yeah, get in touch with Nigel. He's yeah. well, he's well cool. Yeah, he's well pass, cool. If you could pass details on that, would be class. I'll I'll try to get Nigel on as well. But thank mm. you, thank you so much for your time. Conscious, it's been a busy day for you. Um, <laughs> also really interesting to hear about Nuffield for those of you listening. Uh, I've alluded to it. I haven't said too much, but by the time this is released i'll either know if i am or not a nuffield scholar this year um so that's quite exciting very happy to be successful obviously but also very happy to have got to the stage i have at the minute which allows me to go down to london and have an interview with with nuffield and, and see that sort of process so it's, it's kind of mad that i've made this miss this level in itself so um yeah hopefully when you're listening to this I will be, but we'll see. It's all very exciting. We'll see what happens. We'll see what's next uh, for myself and that side of things. But Claire, before we finish, there's two questions I ask every single person. Um, and one of them is horrible. It's a horrible question. Oh, I God. hate people ask it back to me because I do not know the answer. The first question is, where do you see yourself in five years? Which is the horrible one, I think. And the second one is, if you had any tips for, and let's go into uh, farm veterinary uh, for folk coming into that, what would it be? Oh, so the first one, um, as I say, can I go 10 years? Oh, that's great. Let's go for it. So I won't be a vet anymore. <laughs> is, that, is that the plan? Is that the plan? Well, so I'm currently, so I've just set up my own business. Um, 
the regenerative vet. So I'm trying to help people transition across to more regenerative principles uh, or people in that transition period who are struggling with some animal health and welfare issues. It's quite often to do with parasites, can be to do with minerals, diet, nutrition, that kind of stuff. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. But as I say, my plan is to do myself out of a job. So that is what I want to do. So I would like to, my animals that I'm looking after, whether I've dispensed a hedgerow for them or whether I've prescribed um, some trees or I've prescribed <laughs> um, that kind of thing. I would like to think that at some point in the future, I will do myself out of a job and that would make me the happiest forever. Uh, and then I will go and get some longhorns and um, I'll farm quietly away somewhere. <laughs> That's the plan. I absolutely love that. <laughs> and what was the second question? Advice for someone getting to vet school? Yeah, maybe someone that wants to stay in veterinary and not get themselves out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> um, do loads of work experience. That would be my like, yeah, do loads, whatever you can possibly do, get it. I mean, we had to do like 10 weeks, which was quite hard when you're working full time, but try and get as much as possible and go on to like, even if you're not sure you want to do it. So like I was pretty convinced I didn't want to do farm. So I probably didn't do enough farm before I went, but like get out there, seed and don't just go to one farm and think that's what they're all like, which is unfortunately what I did do. And then I think that put me off a little bit more, like get out and about, go and see it, get loads of work experience and then just fight your corner like tooth and nail. Cause there's lots of people wanting that wanting that job and just because I think it gives you if you can get a place at a vet, a vet practice which is difficult to do vetting is nothing like I expected it was going to be in good ways and bad so try and get that experience to understand what the job really is because it isn't just it's not actually about animals it's about people oh well, it's about animals obviously but it's about people and it's about that communication and that's actually the most important bit so it's how you deal with those situations to make the best for those animals Love it. Love it. Again. <laughs> yeah, well, I think at the end of the day that the person who has the, the deciding say over those animals is the person. So you yeah, hundred percent. Um yeah. Got well, to bring them along with you. Have you heard of James Herrick? Uh, uh, sorry, Harriet, no. Herrick. Yeah. <laughs> no, not James, no, James Herriot. I was like, is he actually asking me if I've heard of James Herriot? Of course I have. No, sorry, no, I haven't. Now you say it. Is James Herry a real person? It was. It's, it's a made-up name. Well, okay, I've so forgotten his what, real name, but it's, well, he was it was like a real person. A, yeah, yeah, he was a vet. Yeah, I've forgotten his name. That's really sad, isn't it? But he, James Herry, it was a real vet. I mean, I, he's the reason I wanted to be. Is he? No yeah. way. No way. So I, I am. I uh, arguably the reason I didn't want to be because I hated farming <laughs> when I was young. From farming, hated it. Right, genuinely. I, mum and dad. Oh, oh, oh back that up entirely they were never the people that pushed me into it it was whatever i wanted to do and i think when i went to go study agriculture half of aaron was like does he know what that means uh, you know like it was it was like a proper like, <laughs> but, um, the reason i'm saying this is every morning mom and dad had james herriot on and it was like I, I don't think i ever watched it once but no i, I said james herrick and the reason i said james herrick he um he's a farmer i can't remember where from it's england that's all i have uh but uh I filmed with him, and I think I think it'd be an episode you quite like. It was episode twenty three, I believe, of the R two cast. Um, he, he does a bit of writing for the Farmers Weekly, but he speaks a lot about herbal lays, and and he's trying to progress his pretty notable beef unit that he's taken on from his parents into a more regenerative um oh, cool farm. And it's a really he's he's so open about the fact that I want to get there. It's not going to happen like that. But I absolutely love watching the process. Um, I think what's his name on Instagram? Is it Baldy's Farm? 
I like that. Yeah, Baldy's Farm. So Baldy's underscore farm. That's him. You should. I think you'd quite like. Okay, I will find him. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, no, it's good. And it's a, it's a, and yeah, it's not, it's not a final process, and it's not a destination. I think that's the thing. It's just like, and I did a holistic management training, which was really, really useful. So if you like, it gives you like a decision making. So, so you come up with your context. So like, this is what the what I want with my life. Um, and my what I can. And this was like two years ago now, and it was that I advocate for um healthy livestock as part of healthy ecosystems that benefit people and planet. And then every decision that I then make is based on getting to that that point. Doesn't mean you're there. It just means like how do we get to that point and what decisions do we make and how do we make those decisions? And that's been really helpful for me as well. So no, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. No, here it's been an absolute pleasure. And as someone that was recently, about three days ago, by a student asked if they had an ecosystem in their beard, I think I should know what <laughs> here. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it has I was wondering that. Well, here, well, do you know, what we started, <laughs> no one else can obviously see this, but uh, I can hide stuff in there if I need to, like, just... Oh, look. There's that pen gone. Have you got a pen in there as well? Fantastic. Yeah. Not, in, not in my beard, for anyone watching. Oh, sorry. In, yeah. my <laughs> in my hair. Thank you. Currently, for those that are listening, because you can't see anything, um, Claire has a pen hidden in her hair, and I have a pen <laughs> hidden in my beard. Uh, so... That's not how I expected this episode to end. <laughs> no. It has been an absolute pleasure. I've wanted to do this, as you know, because we've tried about three times. <laughs> uh, to, to That's happened for some time. So thank you for coming on, uh, Claire. I appreciate your time. As I said, the last episode was with Bethany speaking about um, Everest. And I'll be honest, ever since I filmed with Bethany, I've went down a proper rabbit hole, or shall we say a dung beetle tunnel, um, for the sake of this, just looking into... Everest and all the 14 peaks above 8,000 meters and I am fascinated I'm just down a complete hole about it I've spoke to the lady who now holds the world record she took it off of Nim's die uh, for being the quickest to peak all 14 uh, I've spoke to her she's keen to come on the podcast it's not going to be until after um, after January she, she responded with something like just nipping up Lotse <laughs> A couple of times in the next couple of months, which is for those that don't know, about 8,400 meters high. Um, I think it's like the seventh highest peak in the world. Uh, but yeah, really looking forward to having her on as well to speak more hills. Um, and then, yep, next episode, as I said, with ex uh, stocks person of the year for young farmers, David Mitchell. So, another good chat there. Today's been with Claire Whittle. I hope you've enjoyed. I'm sure you have. Um, thank you very much for listening. And Claire, thank you for your time. No worries. See you again. Absolutely, I look forward to it. We'll see you for the next episode. It'll be one, four, three. I hope you've enjoyed another excellent episode of the R2 cast as much as I have. And I would just like to quickly thank our primary sponsors of the show today, Howden Rural, the new name for A Plan Rural. If you follow Howden Rural on social media, you'll see the plethora of work that they do to support this sector. And it's been a pleasure to work alongside them so far, and long may it continue. For more information about them, be sure to check out Howden Insurance dot co dot uk forward slash rural and i'll see you for the next episode